question. So we really have, it's a tremendous passage today. It is such a great, it's not a long passage, but it is really just a glorious. And I have, to be quite honest, I've struggled all week. Um, there have been a few times where I've heard preachers and I feel like they've, maybe like to use a cooking analogy, they've been given this filet mignon and they turned it somehow into ground beef, right? And the, to the, by the end, I think, wow, you had this beautiful cut of meat and you're serving us a hamburger with it. You shouldn't do that. You should take care of the meat like it's. So I have this text and it's beautiful and I'm reading it and it's somehow simultaneously incredibly simple and really super deep and complicated and i just i look at it once and i think oh it's easy it just falls right apart this text is easy kind of to uh, break into pieces and understand and then i look again and i just think how am i ever going to do that and i have made some mistakes previously where i would try to preach a passage that i feel like the truth of the passage is echoed all through the bible and the trap that I've fallen into on other occasions is to then, in the course of the sermon, show you every other place that this kind of idea is echoed. And it just becomes so confusing in the end. There's so many different uh, references and cross-references and all these kind of things. And so I, I'm going to try not to do that. I, I put a lot of the, the references in the PowerPoint. I'm not going to actually read them, but they'll be on the screen and so later on if you'd like me to share that stuff with you i can i can uh, kind of share it with you most of those i found through uh a commentary i'm using it on colossians ff bruce just a really a brilliant brilliant man using ff bruce's commentary for this uh this my 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 sermons anyway in, in colossians and so the meat of this text the real the core of it i think is that that Jesus is supreme, right? That's kind of what it says in the ESV heading, the preeminence of Christ, that there's nothing at all that is above Jesus. And because there's nothing above him, he deserves all of our worship, he deserves all of our effort, he deserves all of our energy. And when we have Christ, then we literally have nothing to fear because he has authority over everything. And so we, we don't get stuck into this place where we... Uh, get panicky about earthquakes or about cancer or about demons or any of these kind of things that come to us in life. We don't we don't worry because Christ is over all. That's the that's really the main idea of what we're going to see today. And it's just incredible news. So let's read it. We'll pray and then uh, I'll do my best to try to show you why why I love Colossians in this passage in particular so much. So Colossians 1:15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the firstborn. He is the beginning, he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him, before him, above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truths that are contained in this passage, that we, uh, that we can stand faultless before the throne, that uh, Christ is above all, that we don't have to be concerned. And so we pray that as we uh, look at these things, as we seek to understand, we, we pray that you would allow our minds to be open, that we might really understand what this means. And we pray that your word would be uh, just open and attainable to us today, that we might apply it to our lives. And so we ask that you would just bless and move in our midst. God, would you be glorified? We pray during this time, in Jesus' name, amen. So this is kind of where we're going we're gonna to look at three, three reasons that we can know that Jesus is, we, three reasons we can know Jesus is God from this text. And here's the first one. We can know that Jesus is God because he is the exact image of God. We see that in verses 15 and 16. And so the question might be, why is it important that Jesus is the exact image of God? There's an interaction in Exodus 33. If you want to turn there, you can turn to Exodus chapter 33. Where Moses and God kind of have this uh, conversation, this, this, this interaction. Exodus 33, starting in verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, that's the Lord. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Verse 20, but, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So we have this exact representation of God. It's important because Moses, when he asked to see God's, see God's glory, God said, you can't, you can't see me and live. And God doesn't say, Moses, why would you ask for such a thing? He doesn't rebuke him for the request. He just tells him, Moses, if I give you the thing that you're asking for, it's going to kill you. So I'm not going to give you the thing that you are asking for. And we were, over the course of the last few weeks, making the case that it is God's desire to be with His people. I believe I lost my batteries there. So it's God's desire to be with His people. And so... He's kind of in this position where it's God's desire to be with his people, but being with his people is going to cause humanity to be destroyed, right? Our sinfulness, this is what we were saying just before Christmas, our sinfulness causes us to, to continually pull back from the Lord, not to press into him, we pull back. And so Jesus is uh, God's exact representation in a way that we can, he can be among his people without having to kill them. It's just an incredibly important issue for us that Jesus is the exact representation of God. Then we also see that he is, or that all creation is by him and for him and through him, right? This is no small proposition. You can see some of the 
the text up there from Genesis to Corinthians, this uh, up and down in John and Ephesians, we just see it in Hebrews, that, uh, that creation is by Christ and for Christ and th- through Christ. We, have, we might ask, uh, who created the world? And someone say, God created the world. And we might say, who created the world? And someone say, Jesus created the world. And both of those answers are absolutely correct. The world was not only created in Jesus, but by Jesus, and I think this is amazing, for Jesus as well. So your life has purpose, but your life really has purpose insofar as you see and embrace the purpose that God has created you for. God created you in Christ for His purpose. And so that's where we really see the purpose that we have for us in Christ. Secondly, we know that Jesus is God because he is over everything. He is the source and the sustainer, it says in verses 17 and 18. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So verses 17 and 18, see Paul saying that Jesus is not just the beginning of all these things, but he is also the thing that is holding all of this together as well. In verse 16, Paul lists out this thing that's uh, seen and unseen, right? The things on earth and the things in heaven, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible. And he talks about thrones and rulers and dominions and authorities. And then after that list, he says... Jesus is above all of that. Jesus is above all of that. If you don't mind, turn to Mark chapter 4. I want to show you how Mark, how Mark teaches this same idea. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. So in Mark, 34, uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 35 We have Jesus on the boat with his disciples, and a storm comes, and they say, Master, we're going to be killed, and he says, no, no, you're not going to be killed, and he speaks, and the storm dies down, right? The very next story after that, as chapter 5 opens, is the man with the legion of demons inside, and Jesus comes, and with a word, he sends out all of these demons, and so Mark is showing at the end of chapter 4, Jesus has power over the natural, he says, Be still, and the natural world responds to what he says. He speaks to a legion of demons, come out of him, and the supernatural responds to him as well. The things that are seen and the things that are unseen, Jesus speaks, and they obey. Then you have the next section where you have the woman that's bleeding. She's been bleeding for 12 years, trying to get help. She can't get help. She just reaches out in faith, and her faith in Jesus causes her physical body to be healed. She's tried everything, and nothing works. But Jesus is able to heal her physical body. And then right after that, he goes into where this girl has died, and Jesus speaks to her spirit and calls her back and brings that girl back from the dead. He has power over the natural He has power over the supernatural. He has power over our physical bodies. He has power over our spirits. This is what Mark shows us. The seen, the unseen, the seen, the unseen. Jesus has power over all of these things. In a similar way, when Luke is telling these stories, it comes to the end lots of times, and the people say, Who is this man? Who is this man who speaks to the wind and it obeys? That's the picture that we're getting. He is the source and he is the sustainer he does everything he has power over everything because he ultimately is over everything 
He is also, according to Paul, the head of the church. We get back to Colossians 1.18. Jesus is the head of his church, which is his body. If we read through Acts, we see in uh, Paul's testimony specifically, but we see it over and over, when Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, I don't even know who you are. I'm not persecuting you. And Jesus says, when you persecute my people, you are persecuting me. When you persecute the church, you're persecuting the Christ as well. We see that in Acts. We see it just all over. That Jesus is the head of the church, which causes us to realize who's not the head of the church. The pastor's not the head of the church. The members are not the head of the church. The leaders, the deacons, however you want to think about these councils, not the head of the church. At best, a pastor is an under shepherd who comes along and serves under Christ to bless his body. He's like the first person to sacrifice. That's the leader. That's the way the leader does those things. The church as one body with one head is critical to what Jesus is teaching. It's critical to what Jesus thinks about his people and it's, it's critical to what Paul is saying in this passage. Then we also see that uh, Jesus is head over life and resurrection, right? He not only is beginning the firstborn from, he's the firstborn from the dead in, the, in everything that he might be preeminent. We're going to die. We're going to come back to life for our judgment. Jesus is head of that. He's, he's leading the way in everything that happens to us. Thirdly, we know Jesus is God because all of the fullness of God dwells in him. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. So Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 4 teaches this same kind of idea. And this really, for me, is the place where when people say, oh, Jesus was a prophet or Jesus was a great teacher, that all of that really breaks down because the Bible never claims that Jesus was a good guy. The Bible claims that all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He is far more than a good teacher. He's far more than a prophet. We can see that Jesus reconciles us, right? Paul doesn't say uh, what you hear sometimes, that Jesus became God, right? He was a normal guy, but because he was so obedient, he became God. You hear that? So this, that's not what Paul says. Sometimes people will try to teach, well, the Holy Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism, and at that point, Jesus became the Christ. There's Jesus the man and the Holy Spirit comes down and he becomes Jesus the Christ. That's not true. That's not what Paul says. There were people that Paul was, John, others, Peter, always fighting against in the New Testament who say he only seemed to be God. He seemed to be this, he seemed to be that, but he really wasn't all of those things. What Paul is saying is here, God is in the flesh. He is in an actual human body. And he lived in that human body so that he could pour out his blood on the cross. And, and we, who were once alienated and hostile, could be brought in and made part of his family. 
That's what we celebrated Christmas. Jesus took on a physical body and he suffered and he died. And on the third day, he rose again. You see how this fits together, right? We have this God who wants to be with his people. And we have this holiness that's associated with him where we can't see him unless we, or if we see him, then we'll die. And so God himself comes to occupy this middle ground somehow where he comes from heaven, takes on this flesh so he can be among us and can die in our place. He makes it possible for us to have peace with him. And then finally he makes us holy, without blemish, free from accusation. Right? Romans 8 chapter 1 says, There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is why we have, to, we have to understand these sorts of things in the Scripture. Because believers will come sometimes and say, Oh yeah, uh, I haven't been reading my Bible. I haven't been doing too well. I haven't been tithing. And so God's, God made me sick. That's not how God works. Your sin is punished in Christ on the cross, or your sin will be punished later on. But if you're following Christ, He's not going around giving people cancer because they don't obey Him and don't, don't do the things that He wants them to do. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the way that we live, holy and without blemish, free from accusation. So we're reconciled people that will be completely counted not guilty. It's unbelievable. I'm guilty this week I've been guilty. And yet I'm counted as not guilty because of Christ. The Bible says that we are justified, right? We're made Right. We were not right, and we were made right because of Christ. And, be, and after that transaction has happened, we see Galatians 2.20, and we see in 2 Corinthians 5, the response then, how we live, how it changes the things that we do because of this thing that's happened in us. Those two passages are incredible pictures of what life should look like for us as we move forward. We're, not, we're born again. We're not the same old people that we used to be. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for Christ. So what do we do? A couple quick things. We're, we'll be finished. First, we trust His power. We trust His power. Sometimes we're, we're tempted to believe somehow that there, there's Jesus and there's the devil and they're equal and they're battling it out and we don't know how that's going to end up. But it's just not true. God is eternal and demons and Satan and angels and everything else below him was created. So God and uh, Satan are not equal. Jesus and the devil are not equal. God's eternal. They were created. And as created beings, he has power over them as much as he has power over everything else that's happening in the world. That means when it feels like our life is spinning out of control, right? We have sickness. We have loss. My uh, uncle passed away this week when we experienced these losses in our lives and we just, we, we, especially when they're close, close, close to us, we think, Lord, how am I supposed to continue in the face of this? We feel uh, circumstances against us. We have uh, difficulties at work. We have uh, so many options laid before us that we think, how am I supposed to choose the right road to be on at this point? What, what in the world? And we feel like our life is drifting or it's out of control. In those times, we trust Christ. We bring ourselves back to, to what we know to be true in the Word. We might feel like we are abandoned and hopeless, but the Word says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. 
right? In Isaiah, the, the Lord talks and he says, a, a, a mother might forget the baby that she's nursing, but I will never forget you. Can you imagine a, mur- a mother forgetting the baby while she nurses it? It's even more unthinkable that God somehow would forget his people. So we might feel abandoned. We might feel out of control, but life is never out of control because Jesus is in charge. That's the first thing there. Second is this. We can trust him and then we can draw near to him, right? I love this when I just was sitting in Starbucks thinking about this incredible truth. You were far away. I was far away and hostile in mind. But God loved us so much that he sent his son to die in our place so that we could stand on the day of judgment without sin. We could stand without shame and we could be welcomed into the presence of Christ in a way that right now we can only imagine. That we know when we die in Christ, we will be with him. And when it's time to be judged, we will be found not guilty because we're blameless because he made us holy and without blemish. It's incredible. We were far away, but now we're not far away. Right? I could sit at Starbucks and weep about that. I could just think, wow, I, was, I really was far away, and now I'm not far away. And it allows us this Freedom to look at people and say, if you are far away, you don't need to be far away because it's not the will of Christ that you be far away. He would have you come right now and be his. So we can rejoice this morning over the fact that we've been reconciled or we can give ourselves so that we might be reconciled today. There's no reason. There's no reason for us to live apart from Christ. There's no reason for us to be living apart from Christ. We trust in him. We draw near to him. And then we... Continue in the faith. Now, I believe, I believe that a person cannot lose their salvation. I think that um, it, it, it. Here's the here's the challenge of it. I think a person cannot believe their salvation, cannot lose their salvation. But I also would say that there are many people who behave like they're saved, or confess that they are saved, or live like uh, in some ways that they're saved, but they're not really saved. And I think it's, it's quite easy for us to fool one another. We can live this sort of charade and we fool everyone except God. And I would say there's no value in that. There's no value in coming down to the end of your life and having a Christian funeral with a bunch of Christian people at your funeral and you not be a real believer. There's no value in that. We're studying our men's Bible study on Tuesday, uh, John. We were up to John chapter 10 this week and was really struck by the, the way that what we do reveals who we are. What we do reveals who we are. There were two examples in John chapter 10 about that. When he says, uh, I speak, my sheep hear my voice, and they respond to it. So when they hear his voice, they respond. And their response, what they do, reveals who they are. They're his sheep. When you respond, you're his sheep. And then the other is about the shepherd. He says the shepherd is there, and when danger comes, maybe a wild animal comes, the hired hand runs away. But the shepherd stays to his own danger, her own danger, and fights for the life of the sheep. What the shepherd does reveals who the shepherd is, right? Lots of people might have the title, but the truth is when danger comes, some run away and some throw themselves in between the wild animal and 
and uh, the one that they're trying to protect. So it could be that people say one thing or they say another thing, but in the end, the truth is displayed. The truth is displayed in how people live their lives. The truth is displayed in how people live their lives. So who are we? Are we in Christ? Are we continuing on in the faith? Because Paul does say uh, in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. So do we hear the voice of Christ and respond to that? Are we laying down our life for the cause of Christ in the midst of other people? Or when danger comes, do we do we run away? Or when other opportunities come, do we listen to our own heart more than we listen to what Christ is telling us to do? There's a picture in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, and most of you probably are familiar with that, where the, Jesus tells the story and says, the sower goes out and he throws his seed out, and the seed falls, seed falls four different places, on the path, among the uh, thorns, on the rocky ground, and on good soil. But only one of those actually produces a plant that can later on produce fruit. And so it's the same seed that's cast. It's the same plant that shoots up. But some of those wither out really quickly. And some of those are choked out by thorns. And some of those are stolen away by birds. And the thing that starts well and seems right doesn't end as well as it should. So I would say let's us be ones who not only start well but finish well too. That's what that's what really matters. Not who starts well, but who who finishes well. We want to be those kind of people. Very last thing, I want to read uh, just three verses. This is from Coloss- This is actually Colossians 1, 21 to twenty three. But I'm going to read it from the message. Okay, I'm going to read it from the message. This is how that. The message translates it, paraphrases it anyway. You yourselves are a case study of what he does. At one time you all had your backs turned to God, thinking rebellious thoughts of him, giving him trouble every chance you got. But now, by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together, whole and holy in his presence. You don't walk away from a gift like that. You stay grounded and steady in the bond of that trust, constantly tuned into the message, careful not to be distracted or diverted because there is no other message, just this one. Every creature under heaven gets the same message. That's the gospel that changed us. That's the gospel that's changing people all around us. The opportunity for people to hear that Christ is God and he died in his physical body so that men and women could be reconciled from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Men and women from all over could be reconciled to God. That's the gospel that we heard. That's the gospel that we give to other people as well. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word and just the glory, the beauty of what we have in Christ. Lord, I just think about those great hymns that you break the power of canceled sin, you set the prisoner free, and how it echoes what it says in uh, John chapter 8, whom the Son sets free, he is free indeed. 
We believe that you were there at the beginning, that you were one with God right out of John chapter 1 into the songs that we sing. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people who live, who live in such a way that, Lord, the difference that Christ has made in us is evident to the people around us. And that you would use that salt and that light to draw people to Christ. We pray that the gospel would not just be in our hearts, but would overflow out of our mouths so that the people around us could hear the good news that Christ is willing to not count men's sins against them. Thank you for your incredible plan to take us who were far off and scattered and, uh, Lord, shaking our little fists in your face, and you brought us near. And, Lord, I pray for any who are still feeling scattered today that you would lovingly bring them in to your kingdom of heavenly light. Thank you again for the chance that we have to be together. We pray that, Lord, uh, again, any who need to come to Christ would do that before they leave today. Help us to grow in our fellowship and our love for one another. Help us to uh, trust you and, Lord, uh, to carry the name of Christ everywhere that we go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Gonna let Sydney stop that before I say this next.